Welcome. We are starting a new series today. It'll go the four weeks of June before we go into our two-month summer break as we finished our, our last series last week. We're dealing with what we are calling meeting with God or private worship. Uh, with minor exceptions, we will, you'll see there's, there's some uh, dealing with public worship a little bit too. Uh, but the two settings of worship of God um, are private worship, what we do on our own, uh, usually at home, and then public worship, what we're doing now when we gather with God's people. Now, public worship is no less important than private worship. Uh, certainly, there's a lot Scripture has to say about that. But uh, it's kind of a matter for another day. In fact, we did a book, we read through a book together, I think it was last summer, was it, or two summers ago, on corporate worship uh, to kind of think through that issue. But now we're dealing with private worship. Let me open us in prayer and then kind of get going on today's lesson. Father, we thank you that you have made a way for us to approach your throne through Christ our mediator. He has made every provision he has done everything necessary to bring sinners near to you as cleansed forgiven adopted and justified sons and daughters and we uh, thank you that your spirit is is within us and it's in the spirit that we come to you as father we pray that you would today help us to think clearly and biblically about what you've said about worship and how this ought to look in our lives And we pray that it would be to the end that you would stir up in us greater devotion to you and lives that are lived for you in response to your grace in the gospel. Give me clarity and faithfulness in teaching. Give us all alertness of mind and softness of heart to hear your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, in the evangelical world, the common name that we often give to private worship is quiet time. And uh, I'm not here to police language. But that's not my favorite terminology, Uh, basically for two reasons. One is, um, it doesn't actually say what we're doing. (laughs) There's nothing about quiet time that actually indicates what what it is we're doing during that time. And secondly, quietness quietness is not really the point. Uh, Certainly is wise to find a a quiet circumstance. It's, It's maybe a wise situation there to be in, but it's, it's, it's a secondary issue. The point isn't to be quiet. The point is to worship God in private. Uh, and we could also call it communion with God, private communion with God. Um, and there's basically two essential opon- uh, components to it. Uh, one is uh, that we hear God talking to us, which is in engaging with his word in scripture. And then we also respond and talk back to God, which is prayer. Uh, so there's essentially God talking to us and us talking to God. The scripture and prayer are kind of the two. I mean, we sing as well. And we can sing in private. Uh, and um, some of us should either only be singing in, in a very public setting or in a very private setting. No, uh, But uh, it's good to sing in private too. But we're not going to deal with that in this, in this uh, series. But a lot of what we say about prayer, essentially singing, although it's not exactly the same, uh, it would fall into the same, a lot of the same issues there. Um, well, to get us all thinking about this topic of private worship, we're going to do what we did last series in the beginning and just have a, few, uh, a moment to write some answers to a few like personal reflection questions uh, just to kind of get our hearts and minds uh, ready for what we're talking about. So a few questions I have for you. The first is, what does your private practice of, what does your practice of private worship look like right now? How often 
do you do it, what do you do, uh, how long do you usually do it, uh, and essentially, yeah, have you seen any changes in that over, over recent years? So what do you do, how often, how long has it changed lately? I'll give you a couple minutes on that one. Or maybe a minute. Shouldn't take too long. The second question is, um, are, how content are you with your practices here? Are there changes that you would like to see? Or do you feel like what you're doing right now um, pretty much is, is a healthy and sustainable pattern of private worship? So, Are there, are there changes you want to see? How content are you with your current pattern? And then thirdly, am I going too fast? We good for a third question? Um, thirdly, um, what is your emotional response to touching on this topic? Uh, is this immediately as we start talking about private worship or even asking how often you do it? Uh, is the first response a sense in, in your heart of maybe guilt or perplexity? Just wondering, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing or what I should be doing. Or is it excitement or is it boredom? How do you? How, what kind of emotional response arises in your in your heart when we start dealing with this topic? Well, I hope that answering these questions just helped get the wheels turning in our own heads about where we're at on this issue and maybe where we want to be and, and all that. Um, and uh, often this can be a matter of guilty feelings because a lot of, I would say, in question two, a lot of us probably aren't quite content with where we are in this a matter of private worship. The point of this class certainly is not to pile up guilt, but rather to uh, encourage and remind us of our privileges we have in Christ and to stir up uh, just a desire, an increasing desire to make use of those privileges and draw near to God. Uh, so we don't want to pile up discouraging kind of guilt because there's no condemnation in Christ. But rather we want to uh, stir ourselves and one another up to laying hold of the, the, the riches we have in Christ. And giving practical tools for, for how to do that. Um, so here's how this series is going to go. First, uh, we're going to deal with some preliminary issues regarding meeting with God. And then um, we're going to look at five ways we engage with Scripture. So first, kind of general, in general about meeting with God. Then five ways of dealing with Scripture. And then we're going to deal with prayer. 
So today we're going to deal with those preliminary issues and the first of the five ways of, of, of interacting with Scripture. Next week we're going to deal with the other four ways of interacting with Scripture. And then the, the latter two weeks of the course, Jason Kenny will be teaching on prayer, various aspects of prayer. Um, so any questions about what we've covered or the course before we go into on, on meeting with God? Okay, let's go ahead and, and talk about, first of all, the possibility of meeting with God. This is our first issue. Uh, is it even possible to meet with God in private worship? This may be something that we've assumed for so long, we've never even thought about the possibility that it could be any other way. Uh, but the testimony of God's word teaches that God is the initiator of any relationship that men or women or children can have with him. Um, do you know what happens when humans try to initiate contact with God without responding to God's initiative? You know what kind of thing happens? We, we, uh, we do things like try to build a tower to heaven from earth, like the Tower of Babel. Uh, or we make up false gods, or we make up images to represent the true God, idols. All of these are man-made sort of bottom-up attempts at, at meeting with God that aren't a response to his own uh, initiative, his own revelation to us, and they're all an abomination to God. Um, but the fact is that ever since creating us, God has been relating to us. And uh, our meeting with God is ultimately a response to his movement toward us in grace and in, in self-revelation. So we're going to briefly survey the ways that he's done this. The first is called, uh, we could see God has spoken in nature. God has spoken in nature there in your handout. Can anyone tell us what the theological name for this, this term of uh, God's self-revelation in nature? What do we call this? Kind of the, anyone familiar with this term? Wilson. General revelation. general revelation. Very good. So this is generally available. It's, it's broadcast everywhere. It's accessible to everyone. God has revealed his character and his moral will uh, in nature, and it's, it's available to all. So a couple of clear texts regarding this. Uh, can I have someone be ready for uh, Romans 1, verses 19 to 20, to read that in just a moment? Any volunteer? Romans 1, 19 to 20? Tyler, thank you. And I'm going to read Psalm um, 19, verses 1 and 4. Of course, there's two verses in between that kind of elaborate this point, but just for time. Psalm 19, 1 and 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Verse 4 says, Their voice, that is like the heavenly bodies, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So the psalmist is teaching that the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars, proclaim God's glory. And this is, it's broadcast over all the earth and the ends of the world. So everybody sees the heavens and everybody should be able to see uh, that God is glorious. He's the one that made these things. Um, Paul makes a very similar point in the text, Romans 1, 19 to 20, that Tyler is going to read. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Thank you. So Paul, in the context, he's explaining why people are accountable to God for unrighteousness and under his wrath. That's kind of starting this argument toward the gospel in the beginning of Romans. 
And um, so his, his sort of proof of why everybody's accountable for sin, even people who were outside of, say, the, the stream of redemptive history, they never heard, they, they weren't at Sinai, they never heard the law, they never heard um, what we have in, in Scripture. But he's saying the knowledge of God is publicly available in nature to all people uh, all over the world. So everybody knows better. Everybody knows who God is. He's made it clear. And we're not going to look there, but in, a little bit later in Romans 2, verses 14 to 15, um, this extends to our conscience, where we actually have some sense of the moral will of God uh, directly written into our conscience, uh, so that, again, we're accountable for breaking it, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, people who, again, never came under the hearing of the law or the prophets and people like this. So this is uh, God speaking in nature. Um, but secondly, God has spoken in history. And I'm not talking about God speaking by means of the progression of history. I just mean um, God speaking throughout history. Uh, general revelation, you probably could pick this up by the way you described it. It's enough for accountability. It's enough for guilt. But it's not enough for salvation. Ever since Adam and Eve fell into, the, uh, into sin in the garden... Uh, we have needed more revelation from God. We've needed knowledge about more than just his existence and character uh, and what he wants from us, but we've needed knowledge about how to be saved from our sin, how he's working in the world to redeem us from our lawlessness. Um, We've been estranged from God, and we've kind of been using Old Testament terminology, we've lacked a way to ascend the mountain of the Lord and be near him. And so he's had to reveal himself more specially than simply what's available in general revelation. So right there in the garden with Adam and Eve, he started doing this. He began giving what we call special revelation, which is just a more specific revelation about himself and his redeeming plan that's not generally available to all. People have to, have to hear it. It has to be uh, communicated. Um, again, special revelation is initiated by God. He's the one. It's not like uh, people say, hey, God, uh, what are we going to do? You know, and, and then he, he said, well, okay, here's the plan. He said, here's what I'm going to do. He took the initiative, and all along the way, he was taking the initiative to reveal himself to people. He approached Adam and Eve in the garden right after the fall and promised the serpent-crushing seed there in Genesis. You can see uh, chapter 3, verses 8 to 19. Uh, zooming ahead many years, he's the one who approached Noah in Genesis 6, verses 12 and 13 and told him to build an ark to escape the flood of judgment. Of far later uh, still, in, in uh, Genesis 12, 1-3, we hear that he approached Abram, who is a pagan idolater and certainly uh, a man who wasn't seeking after God, and promised Abram uh, an eternal covenant through his descendants that would lead to blessing for all the nations. So there's this pattern all the way through, uh, and, it, and it goes on. Abraham's family, which becomes the covenant nation of Israel, um, M- Moses, and then eventually a long series of prophets. As God reveals himself, it's always God's initiative to reveal himself to his people. Um, so throughout history, God has chosen to reveal himself, and that's what we call special revelation. Um, any thoughts or questions about these things so far? Kind of surveying a lot of biblical material very quickly, just for this one theme here. Uh, but thirdly, God has spoken in his Son. So all this special revelation wasn't just God, miscellaneous things, God, oh, by the way, telling people various things that are disconnected. It was all about a plan. It was all about one specific plan. 
And it, the plan was again something of God's initiative, God's design, and God's work to fulfill. And it was a plan to send his son into the world as the incarnate uh, God-man, Jesus Christ. Um, and the New Testament represents Jesus in his coming as the pinnacle of God's revelation. That God has never and will never speak more clearly to us than in sending Christ in the flesh. So, um, would someone be willing to read John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14? So, Gary, thank you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you. So, we've known about the Word of God. You know, we've been hearing the Word of God. If you read the Bible, the Word of God has been occurring, like I said, ever since the Garden of Eden. Um, and it's come through Moses and the prophets, etc. And then John tells us this amazing thing, and, and this is how he frames the coming of Jesus. Is that, Oh, by the way, the Word of God is an eternal person who is with God and is God. He shares the nature of God, but he's also a, a different person from God the Father. And that's the one who became flesh and came to us. So Jesus' coming is... Um, it's a profound act of revelation and self-expression from God that the very uh, person whose, whose personhood is the expression of God came to us. Um, and uh, this, is, this is the most climactic and ultimate way God could speak to us is in sending the person who is the word. Um, the author of Hebrews makes the same point, and we're not going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, but... It's the same, kind of the same two issues. One is that Jesus is the, the exact representation of God's nature. He's the imprint of God's nature and the radiance of God's nature. So he shares God's nature. He's the expression of God's nature. And therefore, he is the climax of God's revelation after all these centuries of prophets. Um, there's that contrast drawn that he had spoken all these years to the prophets. Now, finally, he's spoken through his son. But then, that's not, that's not the end, even though that's the, the high point. That's not the end of the story with regard to Revelation. Uh, because also, the next point is that God has spoken in Scripture. Um, to compress a bunch of the story that I probably all of us or most of us know, Jesus is not here on earth in the flesh anymore. Uh, you know the story. He, he lived a righteous life on behalf of sinners. He went to the cross to atone for us, for our sins. Uh, he descended into the grave. He rose to life on the third day. He ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. So, are we without a way of meeting with God? I mean, his primary uh, self-expression was the giving of the person of Christ and Christ isn't here physically anymore. We can't look at him. We can't hear him preach a sermon to us nowadays. Um, but, But thankfully, once again, God has initiated a way for us to know him and approach him, and that is the written scripture. And of course, uh, this isn't new to the to our era. This the written scripture was something that came all the way from the era of Moses. Uh, Moses wrote the five books of the law. Uh, the old covenant had the, the five books of of the law written by Moses. Uh, there were also prophets that wrote, and there were various other writings like the the poetic books, the wisdom books, and Psalms. And um, the New Covenant has its own body of written revelation. We have the four Gospels that uh, tell us about Jesus' earthly ministry. We have Acts, which tells us about the coming of the Spirit in the early church. 
And we have letters written by Paul and other apostolic leaders. And then finally, we have the book of Revelation, which gives us visions that, that John received about the last days. Uh, so let me ask you a question. If, if Christ is the pinnacle of God's revelation, so there's this contrast. We had all these years of prophets. Now, finally, we have the sons, so, you know, Hebrews 1 or, or again, John telling us the word of God became flesh and he's a, he's a human being. Um, does that make written scripture obsolete and unneeded? And if not, why not? Why do we still have written scripture if Christ is the pinnacle of God's revelation? Sam <laughs> came in to answer this question. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, according to Luke uh, 24, the scripture declares, all scripture declares, right. the prophet Moses about Christ. So therefore it is extremely important even though he is not present, he is still present. Hmm. That's very good. So you're t- so Luke 24 tells us that uh, Jesus is telling his disciples that the whole all that revelation before him was pointing to him. Is that the the point you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So that's very important too that it's not an either or. It's not a, it's a false dilemma, right? To to pit written scripture against the incarnate Jesus. Because you're right, the, the written scripture is a testimony to him. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, preparing us to even understand who he is and what he did. Um, so throughout, throughout Jesus' ministry and the subsequent ministry of the apostles, they're framing his life and the events of his life and death and resurrection according to the, the, the terms of the old covenant revelation that we have in scripture. So it's a, it's a central context for understanding Jesus. Yeah, yeah, Jeff. We're, we're told in Scripture that we're to know Scripture and to write it on our hearts, in, mm-hmm. in a sense. And yeah. the only way to do that is to have it, read it, and know it. Right, right. So there's this, and you're anticipating our points we're about to make soon, which is there's just this constant refrain in Scripture of being devoted to the Word of God in our in our hearts and minds. And um, there's just no way for that to happen without a, preserve, a means of preservation, in a text. There's something amazing about God's design. This is not just all orally communicated by prophets. Because, I mean, his special revelation was just in the hands of individuals all the way up until Moses, if you think about it. There was not written revelation. There was just individuals who, had, who had God had talked to. And there must have been just some kind of this oral traditions of what God had said. Um, but in his wisdom, he said, I'm going to put this down on paper so that the, my people can return to it. And there's a sense in which it's like always available to them. And then the scriptures continually commend that. That written revelation is how we, how we commune with God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Gary. I, I think of Romans 15, verse mm. 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Mm-hmm. That through perseverance, encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. So yeah. Going back, and, and it's, God says it's written, you know, for our instruction. And then also, it is a, a thing that helps us have hope. Yeah. So good. Romans 15 4, and there are other texts that do the same. The New Testament teaching the new covenant people of Christ after, these are written after Christ's coming and his ascension. They're constantly commending the Old Testament scriptures to the New Covenant Church and saying, this is for us. So yeah, there, there's, uh, 
It ultimately, in so many ways, we could say it's a false dilemma between the written word and the incarnate word. It's the word of God expressed by God in, in both in means of language and the human Jesus Christ. And they're not enemies, right? They, they were always meant to, to go together. So we need written scripture, even as we recognize Christ is the pinnacle of God's revelation and the point of the scriptures, essentially. Um, and then fifthly, uh, God has made a way for us to speak to him. So we have all these things. We're sort of tracing the, tracing the story of God speaking to us. But now we're going to look at a little bit of, well, what is it about? How is it that we can talk to God? How is it we can approach God? The basis for prayer. And again, God is the initiator. It's all a response to his initiation and his revelation. There's a reason why we deal with scripture first and then prayer. Um, one of the most important um, fruits of the gospel, one of the most important things the gospel has accomplished is that Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's our mediator with God. And he has made a way for us to spiritually approach God's throne and find him ready to hear and answer our prayers. Um, this is a precious truth of what Christ has done. That uh, I mean, this, this is where we really get into the riches of the gospel, what, what we have in his redemption. Um, Hebrews, some, was somebody willing to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16? Yeah, Wilson, thanks. And Patty, I'll, actually, can I call on you later for Ephesians 2.18? Thank you. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mm-hmm. Almost needs no comment, right? <laughs> Just the first couple verses are just building up. Like, look what we have in Jesus. We have the great high priest. He's passed through the heavens for us. Of course, this is following a lot of argumentation about Jesus being uh, the true, kind of the true Adam who represents us and all this. And then saying, therefore, like, what do we do about it? Verse 16, let's go with confidence to the throne and find God uh, to be, his posture toward us is one of grace and readiness to hear uses this terminology of, of God as a father, like when Jesus calls us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he says, uh, look, all, all you evil fathers, when your kid asks you for bread, you give him bread, right? Like, how much better is your heavenly father? He's ready to help. He's ready to give grace in our time of need, which is our time of sin and our time of being burdened by trials and confusion. And oftentimes when we feel like God isn't ready to hear us, that's the time of need. So he's saying, that's when we go. So God has made a way, of just a, a beautifully open door for us to seek him in prayer. And finally, God has given us his spirit to draw us to worship him. Uh, as, as rich as the truth is uh, here, we, we don't touch on it very briefly. But again, we have the blessing of the son, Jesus, as our high priest who opens a way for us to go to God. But again, there has to be something internal in us. Not just the objective, oh, we we now have the ability to approach God, but there has to be something in us that moves us to want to do that. And God has has met that need as well. Uh, This is the the Spirit. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit from the Father to indwell his people. And the Spirit is the person of the Godhead most directly responsible for granting and cultivating life 
And part of what this life is that the Holy Spirit produces in us is that he draws us from the heart to worship God. And so, Patty, would you read Ephesians 2.18, please? For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Thank you. A brief little Trinitarian verse, the hymn there in context is Christ. So through Christ, he's the mediator. We have access in one spirit to the destination of the Father. So this kind of tracks with the Hebrews passage, but we see it's in the spirit. Uh, the, the in the spirit is the focal point I want to draw out here, that we don't draw near to God in the flesh. Uh, the flesh, which is our kind of uh, old human sinful nature, would drive us the opposite way. The flesh would never drive us toward the Lord. Uh, we draw near to God because of the life he's put in us and the life uh, that is the spirit, who's really the drawing us toward the love and unity that, that the Father, Son, and Spirit have always shared from eternity. So we, we get not only the way open for us to approach God, but we get to the sort of heart, the heart magnet, right? <laughs> that makes us draw that direction. That's the spirit of God. So um, any desire to pray and any desire to come under God's word and to hear from God is the product of the spirit given uh, new life that we have in Christ. So God has taken all the initiative to make two-way communication, communion between us and him possible. Uh, we can hear him speaking to us in Christ, and we can hear him speaking to us specifically through the living written word that tells us of Christ, and we can access his throne to respond back to him in prayer. Um, so before we move on and talk about the desirability of meeting with God, any uh, thoughts, further reflections on these things or questions? Yeah, Patty. Is it a... Um a good prayer or a right prayer <laughs> to say, Lord, fill me with your spirit that I would be drawn to you more and more. Yeah, it is. Is it a, So you're saying, is it a good prayer to say, fill me with your spirit to draw me to you more and more? Yeah, um, you hear in, I mean, there's a sense in which we understand as believers, we've been indwelled permanently by the spirit. But there's another sense in which we should long for and seek for the ongoing kind of increase of the spirit's uh, lead in us and his influence in us. And so you see people, or Jesus telling in the Luke version, you know, I just said, won't your father give you good things if you ask? In Matthew, he says good things. And in Luke, he says, won't your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And he's talking to disciples. I don't think he's talking about conversion. I don't think he's telling lost people to ask for the Holy Spirit so they'll be indwelled for the first time. I think he's saying, as ongoing disciples, ask for the Holy Spirit to more and more do his thing <laughs> in us. Uh, so yeah, and then you have that terminology in, in Ephesians 5 of being filled with the Spirit as an ongoing activity of, of believers. So absolutely, it's a great prayer. Yeah, Marcy. I was listening to R.C. Sproul like a long time ago, and in one of his sermons, I don't remember the whole sermon, but one of the sentences was, we need Jesus Christ in order to worship Jesus Christ, meaning mm-hmm. we cannot do it on our own. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ has to call us to himself yeah. before we can even consider worshiping him. And yeah. It's just so profound yeah. to me. Yeah, that's very true. It's, yeah, our worship is always a response to his initiating grace. And so we need Christ in order to worship Christ. Absolutely. Um, good. I appreciate that, those, those inputs. Let's talk a little bit about the, the desirability or kind of motives for meeting with God. And of course, I'm sure we could generate a lot more, <laughs> uh, an endless list, but uh, we'll just look at six here. 
The first one is that he's worthy. Uh, he is worthy of us to worship it with, meet with him in worship. Worship has to do with recognizing God's worth. And uh, just to anticipate a verse that we're going to look at in our sermon a little bit later, Isaiah 42, 12. It says, let them, which is all the people of the world, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Uh, so giving glory to God, it means to give, to, to ascribe weightiness and importance to God. Uh, it's recognizing that he's important and he's worth being sought. He's worth our seeking. Um, whatever we spend time seeking, we are assigning worth to. We are cl- we're making a claim about the worthiness of the thing that we spend time seeking. And so what could be more worthy of our time and attention than God? So first of all, he's worthy. Secondly, we belong to him. Uh, would someone get ready to read Galatians 4 verses 4 to 6, please? Someone just cue that up in their Bible. Volunteer. Uh, Matt Boyd, thank you. Um, Christ has brought us into a family relationship with the triune God. We've already kind of talked about this in Ephesians 2.18. But uh, we were once distant strangers in sin. And now, uh, through the cleansing and justifying work of Jesus' blood, we have been adopted. We've been brought into the family. And so now, we belong at the family dinner table. It's the place. It's almost like... If you had your family dinner and one of your kids didn't show up, something would be amiss. Unless, you know, they had a, a good thing that, you know, an, an excuse, like something everyone knows, their sports practice or whatever. But um, if someone just was a no-show, you'd be like, why aren't you here? You belong here at our family dinner table. And we belong at the table with God because we're his adopted children. So, um, Matt, would you read that, that text, please? Uh, but when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Thank you. So we are adopted as sons. This is, again, another text that talks about that same thing, that part of being sons is we have the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ in our hearts, stirring us up with uh, family affections, to call God our Father, which kind of relates back to that's why that's why we worship is God has given us the Spirit to draw us to Him as children who seek our Father, but uh, we belong we belong with God we belong to Him as His children. Um, the third incentive or re- reason why it's desirable is that it increases our knowledge of Him, and of course. On the one hand, we have learning about God, knowing true things about God, but knowing God is a little bit distinct from that. Um, it's certainly built on intellectual knowledge and truth content. I'm not trying to pit those against each other, but relational and uh, experiential knowledge go beyond simple factual knowledge. Um, knowing God personally, which is knowing about him, but knowing him experientially is a great privilege for his children. The Bible tells us that this, this treasure is, is worth more than wisdom and wealth and strength. So uh, Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24. Uh, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So, in that text, 
you hear God naming some of his attributes and we go, okay, we can kind of intellectualize. And again, we should, I'm all about that. The attributes of God and think about his justice and his uh, love and all these things. But, um, but he says too, it's not only knowing the facts about God, but he says, for in these things I delight and going, wow, part of it, what it means to know God is to know his character and to know what delights him to actually come to know him more as a person, not only as an abstract um, object of knowledge. Uh, It's knowing his purpose and his affections and his will and his character. And you don't get this kind of knowledge without spending time with someone, hearing him speak to us in the word and and speaking back to him in prayer. Um, Fourthly, uh, it deepens our worship of him to spend time with God. This is a natural outgrowth of the, the, the point we just saw. To know him truly and to grow into, again, knowing about him and knowing him is to be led to worship him. And in Romans, Paul, you may be familiar, in Romans 9 to 11, Paul gets into the weeds with kind of salvation history and election and Israel and the nations. It's very technical. It's very heady. But he, comes, he kind of comes out, he emerges from the thicket, so to speak, doing what? Praising God. Just this declaration of praise because of the way that God's work in salvation history declares his eternal glory. So he says in Romans 11, verses 33 and 36, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And then he goes on in 36 and says, For from him and uh, through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So, uh, just meditating on God and his work in history leads him to kind of come up for air and, and just, oh, how, how unfathomable and how great is God in his ways. Uh, so spending time thinking about God, his works of salvation, and how they display his character uh, leads to worship, uh, leads to praise. Fifthly, it leads to growth and maturity. Uh, would I have, could I have someone read Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3? So I need one reader for Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. And another reader for Colossians 2, chapters 6, and, sorry, chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. So Cindy, did you get Psalm 1, 1 to 3? Could someone grab Colossians 2, verses 6 to 7? Tyler, thank you. And when you, go ahead when you get there, Cindy. Psalm 1, 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. All right, and then Tyler, Colossians 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Thank you. Now, um, you may or may not be kind of looking at both the texts in front of you right now, but can anyone, can anyone detect any similarities, overlaps between these two texts? Of course, one of them is a poem in the Psalms Old Testament, one of them is an epistle in the New, definitely different parts of the Bible, but are there any similarities or overlaps? Rooting, yeah, it's very good. So uh, Matt zeroed in on this. There's this sort of a, a botanical metaphor of like plant growth and specifically the concept of roots that grow da- down deep into the ground. Um, and yeah, good. Any other thoughts? 
What was that? Feet. Feet. Walking. Walking. Yeah, where you walk. Oh yeah. So so walk in him in Colossians two, and then he and then the Psalm one says, "Blessed one is one who doesn't walk in certain stand in certain places." Uh, with the sinners and so on, yeah. So, and and often that walking metaphor is is a picture of the conduct of our lives, right? Like sort of the the tenor of our lives, what we do, and how we how we behave. Very good. Those are both good. I don't know if there's others, but are there other things? <laughs> um, the Psalm one talks explicitly about the scriptures, the law of the Lord, which. Um, I think is best understood not merely as as commands, but it could also be translated instruction or teaching. So it's just a broader sense of everything God has revealed, both his commands, but also uh, various ways. Basically, everything in his scripture is his teaching and his instruction. And this is the basis for um, great blessing. And we don't have an explicit reference to scripture in Colossians 2, but he talks about uh, established in the faith just as you were taught which refers to a truth content that was, the faith isn't the experience of faith, but it's the, the content of the faith that was preached to the Colossians, the gospel and the truths of Christ. And so he's saying this content of truth about Christ that you were first taught and that you first believed, keep walking in Christ according to this truth and kind of keep putting your roots down deeper and deeper in it and being more deeply established in it. And uh, both of them are in various ways drawing this picture of steadfastness and maturity and permanence, that there's a sense in which we grow deeper and deeper into the things of God as he's revealed in Scripture and in Christ, and we become this. I just love the picture of, especially around here in California, uh, if you're in the Central Valley, um, you can see where the streams are, can't you? When there's just these vast, you know, of flat land of, of no vegetation or maybe just you know, irrigated agriculture. And then you see where there's a stream. You Suddenly there's a strip of lush green vegetation. And if you get up close to some of those trees, there's some massive trees that are just growing all along the banks of streams because they have, that, that, uh, they have the best access to water. Um, so there's, a, there's a, a real permanence and, and solidness there that he's calling us to. And meeting with God grows us up in that kind of maturity. We, we become more consistent in righteousness, holiness, and love, and wisdom. It makes us more resilient in our faith. And as trials come and pains and various stresses, we've, we've kind of learned to exercise the muscles of faith more and more. And, uh, and the Lord uses that to, to, to give us endurance and uh, to, to train us to go. Not, not this kind of stoic inward, like, I can just handle anything. Uh, that, that maturity looks like, biblically, looks like going to God with everything. The psalmists model this. Jesus modeled this. It's just a more and more of a quickness to uh, take things to God and to rely on him to get through all the, the pains and trials of life. Um, and then sixthly, meeting with God equips us to fight. Um, it equips us for the Christian life, not only in just this general sense of maturity and righteousness, but it also strengthens us against enemies uh, that would threaten our faith. The enemies of both what the enemy within and our own, our own flesh, our own hearts, the devil and his use of the world to try to ensnare us and draw us away from Christ. Paul commends to us in Ephesians 6, the armor of God, which is how we fight our spiritual warfare. And he, he ends the whole thing with the word in prayer. 
In Ephesians 6, verses 17 to 18, he says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. So he's saying, um, as we fight Satan and his schemes, um, our kind of the, the, there's all these benefits of salvation he's gone through for the, the armor of God, but then he kind of ends with, you need that, you need to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the word, and we need to pray. Uh, so these equip us to fight and to uh, endure in faith. Does anyone else think of any benefits or incentives to private worship of God besides these six that we've covered? These are all pretty broad, so I may not think of others. Yeah, Patty. Have great joy mm-hmm. in worshiping our Creator. Yeah. So, God shaped hole in ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> that worship yeah. Him fills, and only that. Yeah, absolutely. So we were made in His image to commune with Him, and that was how it was supposed to be before sin, and sin has kind of separated us from God. But now that Christ has brought us back. In worshiping and meeting with God, we're we're essentially this is this is us doing what we were made to do, which is to to commune with God. That's and, and that's a good point, Patty, too. That in some ways it's kind of erroneous to even say like, well, what's the what is worship for? <laughs> it's like, well, in some ways, it's everything else is for. We're like worship is the the last end, the deepest uh, point of our very existence is to worship God. So it doesn't need further justification. Um, so that's that's kind of a good sort of like the final end of it all is that we were made for God, and uh, we we find our greatest blessing in fulfilling that function as worshippers of God. Yeah, Gary, and then Wilson. And as uh, just like in corporate worship, as we grow in our relationship with God through personal relationship, through personal worship, um, we're more effective in our ministry to others. Yes. So it equips us to, yeah, not just this self-contained mature person, but a mature person who's bearing fruit in relationship to others, who's being a blessing for Christ's sake in other people's lives. Absolutely. And Wilson? Uh, oh, okay. I was going to say, it whets our appetites for, for meeting with others that have the same desires. Yeah. So you just overflow and spill and receive. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good. Those are good points. So it, it uh, there's this sort of, Sort of a circularity between, and Greg's made this point in the past. There's sort of a circularity between private and public worship, that each one kind of um, stirs us up to more um, zealously and devotedly pursue the other. Right. So when we're, we're worshiping God in private throughout the week, it, it gives us a real hunger to meet with God's people and keep stirring each other up. But then when we meet with God's people, it stirs us up to then go off and spend our week with God, <laughs> devoted to God. So. Uh, yeah, and, and that's a good point, too. All these benefits are also true of public worship. So this isn't all just only for when we meet with God on our own. The fact, though, is um, if six days a week we are giving almost no thought to God, almost no thought to his word, almost no uh, time in prayer with him, the benefits that we draw, even from our Sunday gatherings, would be severely limited. Even if we, we should all come for all the Sunday gatherings three times a week, I highly commend it to you. But even if you do that, and that's all you're doing with God, um, by Thursday or Friday, God will seem very distant and foreign. The world and sin will seem very near and normal. Uh, that's just, the, the, our hearts can't just go off of that one day. Um, now, there's a lot of ways we can draw from what we got that one day. There's a whole other conversation with thinking through what we've heard in 
the sermon and things like that. But what I mean is um, we need to be engaging with God throughout the week or we're not going to be that Psalm 1 person by any stretch. Uh, so with those preliminary matters behind us, let's, let's pivot and spend the rest of our time starting with the issue of how we Bible intake, how we engage with Scripture. And uh, various people have identified five ways of engaging with Scripture. Um, and so the five that we're going to look at are hearing, reading, studying, meditating, and memorizing. Again, today we're just going to learn about hearing, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll deal with the other four. Um, when you hear, uh, when we hear about like being in God's Word, which of those five, is there, is there any of those five that kind of most naturally occur to you that what are you thinking of first? Reading, yeah. So I think that's probably true, of, if we're all honest, probably true of a lot of us, right? That when we, we hear about or we, we even speak about being in God's word, like we may even use that terminology, what we mean is basically sitting and reading, which is a great, uh, a great way to engage with scripture that we're going to learn about uh, next week. One thing that's very interesting, it might surprise us to hear that the Bible nowhere specifically calls for individuals to read God's word. And that is because um, in that era, the individual Old Covenant Israelites or the New Covenant believers didn't have their own Bibles. Uh, this is really uh, something that has been a, a only possible and practical for every Christian to have a Bible since the, inventing, uh, the invention of the printing press in the late Middle Ages. And so... Um, that doesn't mean that, uh, it doesn't matter if you read your Bible or not. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is the Bible commends a life, kind of to what I think Jeff said earlier. The Bible commends a life that's saturated with God's word uh, that we read about in Psalm 1. Psalm 119. Smokey will once again give us a word out of Psalm 119 that is evening as he's been. A life saturated with God's word in our thinking, in our loving, in our desiring, in our doing. And I would just say, whatever tools are available to us to make that happen, let's use them. So I'm not saying don't read the Bible, but I'm just saying uh, it's, it's maybe as a way of, of reemphasizing hearing Scripture, um, that hearing Scripture actually is an explicitly biblical means of Bible intake. Um, now this, as I said, this is kind of an exception to this focus on private worship, because this isn't just private worship. Actually, hearing is basically most of something we do in public worship. Uh, but since we're dealing with this umbrella of kind of different ways we receive God's word, it probably would be beneficial to talk about hearing scripture. Um, so yeah, so scripture, because like I said, people didn't have their own Bibles at home. Scripture has more to say about hearing scripture read than it does about private reading. And this spans both the old and the new covenants. So, um, I'm going to read a, f- a fairly lengthy uh, quote from Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Would someone else be ready with 1 Timothy 4.13, please? Someone? Yeah, Jason, thanks. Ezra 8, 1 to 3. Um, now, this is a big moment for Israel. This is they, They've come back from the exile, uh, returned from Babylon. And you may know the exile was God's covenant curse against Israel for their uh, ongoing, repeated, hardened treason against his law. And uh, so this public reading seems to function as kind of a symbolic act of covenant rededication to the Lord. It's a very, it's a very pregnant moment, right? When they're all coming back to the land and going, okay, let's read the law together now that we've kind of reconstituted our, our uh, living in this land. So it says, 
And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is a beautiful picture of, first of all, hours long reading of the law. And secondly, that it's initiated by the people. They go to Ezra and say, read, read the Bible to us. And that he does, and that they're attentive to it. That they, they're hungry. This is a picture of hunger to hear from God. Men and women and all who can understand, which, which is kids down to whatever age that they're able to understand what's being said. Um, <clears throat> the New Testament also calls for public reading of Scripture. So, Jason, would you get the First Timothy 4.13, please? Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Mm-hmm. So in this text, really everything from reading all the way to uh, preaching is entailed in this brief command. But definitely an essential component of our worship is hearing God's word read. Um, now, we might think of this as a very passive activity. And in our practice, honestly, we might engage in it as a very passive activity. Uh, that, that, we, that we might struggle with making it more than just something that we sit through passively. We might zone out sometimes, if we're honest, uh, sitting there while someone else reads. But the word of God is, um, the word of God deserves active listening. It deserves a listening that really befits what it is. It's, it's God himself addressing us, speaking to us. And there's a real sense in which we should understand this is a very personal thing. God is how they listen to God's word. And I don't think he just means the reading. We probably, if we know, based on Paul's ministry pattern of like an Acts, he probably was quoting and reading from Old, old Covenant scriptures and then preaching how they applied to Christ. But he says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he's saying you didn't just hear it like ordinary words. You heard it like it was God talking to you. And and again, this would would probably include hearing scripture read and the preaching of scripture. So a lot of what we're saying here has an overlap in how we hear the sermon, which in a lot of ways is just an extension of, of the reading of the scripture. Um. One of the let me let me ask you this, just in terms of our hearts and how we engage with the hearing of God's word read. Let's brainstorm. Does anyone have uh, any ideas about how to maximize our our attentive participation in the reading of Scripture? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, kind of silly, but I listen to a little Wonder Bible. Uh huh. <laughs> you know, I got a headpiece in my ear. So you mean yeah, like around your house, you listen to an I audio Bible. To it, and I can just put it on whatever I want. And yeah. I can, you know. Uh, sometimes you will zone it out because if you're you're too busy, so you do need to be conscious of it. But mm-hmm. I like the idea of going to bed and sleeping and, and mm-hmm. being there and listening to it till I fall asleep. Yeah. That's good. So yeah, that that anticipates the point I was going to make is that there are. Um, we have a lot of options for hearing scripture that are not just the public assembly. We have all these apps and things that will read the Bible to us. Um, and, uh, you know, one of, this is another one of those things where we can load up ourselves with guilt if we're not reading the Bible. 
Um, but there are people who, and I, I still think it's good if you can to make space to read the Bible. But there are some people in their life situations, mothers of very young children, people with super long commutes. It may not be very practical to spend a lot of time reading the Bible. But if you can listen to it, again, the Bible, there's not, the, there's not Bible verses about reading the Bible. The Bible commends to us a life that's saturated with the Word of God, with, with receiving it, hearing it, reading, however we take it in, but, but meditating on it and letting it be like, uh, like this, the streams of water that are, that are watering our roots. So absolutely, Sherry, listening. I'll even throw this question open to you all. What do you think about the idea of attentiveness, of listen, like if you're listening to an app? I'm, I'm sure that one of the hazards of that is that if we're like driving or we're doing dishes or whatever, there could be a sense of maybe we're not always totally focused in, or if we're falling asleep. Is there a sense, like pros and cons? Should we, should, we, should we be like, we should only do it when we can really pay attention? Or is there value in going, hey, I'll just have it on like, like quantity. I'll like blitz myself with quantity. And hey, sometimes I'll pick stuff up and sometimes I won't. Thoughts? Yeah, uh, Marcy. Well, I mean, personally, I can't do it at work because when I'm listening to it, because I'm a note taker. Mm-hmm. So I cannot stop work to take notes. <laughs> Yeah. It yeah. just doesn't work. As much as I would love to, just my particular job is not me. It's just not. Yeah. So that's good. There's some things we have to do, we're called to do that is honoring to God, right? We don't have the sacred secular divide where it's like, if you're not listening to the Bible, you're not pleasing God, right? So you do your job. If your job, doing your job well means you can't really be listening carefully to Scripture, that's fine. You don't, you know, it's not a good fit. Yeah, yeah. Maggie. I think I forget in our heads that the only time that it's valuable to listen or read scripture is when we can fully pay attention Mm -hmm. we miss out on um, the the times that might not be so ideal but Mm -hmm. super beneficial Mm -hmm. like not every morning being in the habit of God's word is more important I feel more important than having super quality time every, like, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. Have super quality time every day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, I think it's a good argument for, I mean, I think we'd all agree on the one hand, we want to strive toward attentiveness. And if we're never engaged in our hearts, that we're not, that's going to be a problem, right? But to Maggie's point, maybe to sum it up, the, 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 the perfect is the enemy of the good or whatever. Like where if we go, if I can't be totally 100% zoned in, then it's, it's bad for me to do it at all. Well, there could be times where quantity has its own value, right? You're kind of in and out, but you could catch a snippet. We're like, oh, wow, like that's, that, I never heard, I never really thought about that verse, right? That like hit me in a new way. So there can be value in, that, in our reading or our hearing. Yeah, for sure. The habit can be very valuable. Um, I, I think, yeah, I'll go Didi and then, and then Christy. I think if I, if, for myself, if I sat there and said, I'm just going to listen to the word of God, I would find my mind wandering. And mm-hmm. It wouldn't be a good quality time for it. But if I'm driving my car somewhere or I'm on a walk or on a run or on a bike ride, I'm doing something else, I find I'm much more attentive that hmm. way. Because I've got something else I'm doing, my mind can be more focused on mm-hmm. what I'm hearing. 
Like just sitting still. Yeah, yeah. Listening. Oh, like I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I guess it's individual preference, but I think I pick up a lot more when I'm you know out in the walk or driving to my work or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I've found similar things with with like prayer too. Uh, yeah. That w- when you're walking or driving, sometimes there can be a yeah, somehow it can kind of focus us in a little like to hear better. Yeah. 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 It can it can fit really well together. Yeah, Chrissy, you hear a point? I find myself when I listen to worship music at home, like later on it'll come to mind and I think it can be something like that too, where your mind is kind of even though you're not fully focusing on it, like I think it just makes more of a, like you're just meditating more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, I think you can recall those things more just like you would a song. Good, good point. So it kind of gets into our bones, right? Like like a song where it, we're not always consciously thinking about it, but sometimes it'll pop up in various times and it's like, wow, that's really good that that, uh, we, <laughs> yeah, we, we do these little catechism songs with the kids and uh, there's, there's one that says, what, I'm not going to sing it, sorry. <laughs> What is faith in Jesus? What is faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer is, it's receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he has offered us in the gospel. And as I was getting ready for last week's sermon, which as you may recall, is all about receiving Christ for all he is, receiving and resting on Christ for all he is, that song was just circling my head. It's receiving and resting on him alone. And, and I was like, wow, I'm glad that we like, spend time as a family learning this little song. Uh, and it's like popping up in my head. And it just kind of was nice. It was like helpful for the sermon. So... Anyway, Tyler, yeah, I'll let you have the last word. This is probably, I'm sure this is true of any way that you're intaking God's word. But something I would want to be careful of is just thinking about my heart and my heart motivation for doing it. Like, if I have a mindset of, like, I just need to be, I need to check the box every day of getting some Bible in me. And it's just very more, like, legalistic and external than that could be a very simple way to mm-hmm. check the box yeah. without really ever engaging with it mm-hmm. or, or thinking about it. Not that it couldn't still benefit you, but um, yeah, for me at least, that would be something I would want to be aware of, of just not getting into a mindset of just, oh, this is a convenient time that I can just check the box. Yeah, very good point. So if our heart, if our heart motive is minimalism, legalistic minimalism then the the danger of the, the danger of saying hey it's okay if you're not always 100% fully dialed in you know our our legalistic hearts like trying to find the loophole it's like great i can just put it on and zone out and like i'm still pleasing god <laughs> the, <laughs> we've totally like if we put it in that context we're totally missing the point right like all these motives of we we want with the desires to draw near to god to to know him better and if there's a sense of it's kind of the ambient noise of my life at times to hear from him because I love him and I want to pick stuff up here and there, that's very different than because then I can feel like, okay, I did my job and God is, God is fine with me today or whatever. So that very good. Often just the hard mode is going to be the, the major issue at the bottom of all this. We'll go Willie and then Gary. Lord, I think right now I, I have time to, to read, uh, to hear instead of read. But please, please help me to glean what you want me to glean from it, and help me to 
be able to be attentive, help me to my mind not to wander. And then also just, at least for me, I, I kind of expect that if I'm hearing it, I'll miss a lot of it. So I would ex just expect and not be surprised, but I just be listening to the same section over and over. So I'll have to repeat it because I probably will um, drift. Mm. Yeah, helpful. Yeah, we can pray before you listen and we can repeat and there can just be a sense of exposure. Gary. Right, listening is kind of interesting in this day and age because you can be listening during lots of different activities. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, I think everybody's different about their ability to give attention to the listening while they're doing different specific activities like, like uh, Marcy was saying at work. I could never listen to speaking but I can listen to music. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, so there's a lot of things where I'll listen to music because I know I'm, my attention. But I can easily sing along with music while mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of other things, which points my heart to the Lord because I'm not listening to the Rolling Stones or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I think there's wisdom in what we listen to when we're doing certain activities. Yeah. But I think, yeah, the value to listening to scripture is always good. Yeah. yeah, just be attentive to the effect it has on us. I'm going to go Jason, last word. Sorry, Gary. I'm going to give Jason the last word because we got it. But uh, we, oh, we can talk later, Gary, if you have. But uh, go ahead, Jason. I think, I mean, the conversation is, is wonderful. And I think we're, we're, as you mentioned, in this modern age where we have sort of all of these options in front of us, it's easy to miss that a lot of the disciplines that you have in those, you know, hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, they were always meant to be interdependent. You heard, you went where the Bible was, that was your opportunity to hear it. You memorized what you heard so you could meditate on it. Mm -hmm. Remember, like, you choose these slices? It right. was always all about them together. Yeah. And it's that intentionality of having your life saturated with the Word of God that requires all of these disciplines together. It's you know, how you intake best is meant to sort of you know be the, the, the way you give in. Obviously, memorizing to stay, keep it there, and meditating to transform. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and that's often how it went. Right? They would go to the synagogue, and they would hear they would hear they they heard a lot of scripture read, like in Jesus' day. They heard a lot. Uh, they they had big swaths of like a Jew who went regularly regularly to the ta tabern not tabernacle to the synagogue would have huge swaths of scripture memorized and that becomes like kind of Christie said with songs it just kind of becomes a fabric of life as we're the 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 what was memorized becomes a matter of meditation and it kind of works its way in deep so you're right these are all very interdependent and I would say too if we're never focusing in carefully there's there's going to be a pretty stunted growth. And that kind of gets into what we're going to look at with study and these things where if, if don't despise the shallows, but let's also realize we need more than the shallows at times too, which is why there's a, there's a real great benefit for, for diversity. So that's good. Real quick, any thoughts? We've talked a lot, um, really good, opened it up conversation about how we kind of listen with our apps at home or, or on the road. What about back to our assembly? Um, any thoughts about how to how to get a good a good hearing out of the, the public reading of scripture? You mean the reading of the word as we stand? Yeah, yeah. The preaching of it. It applies to both. I mean, but basically the hearing the the, the public reading that we do, yeah, the, before the prayer. 
And we also do a public reading. You may not even think about it this way, but we do a public reading in the middle of the sermon or at the beginning of the sermon, right? There's a public reading of scripture and then we exhort and teach like Paul said to Timothy. Yeah. Um, if I follow along reading it as it's spoken, I know I'm Okay, so it helps you to follow along reading as it's spoken. And that's great. Some like to do that. Some like to just focus on the kind of the auditory. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, something I, I know <clears throat> didn't realize up until recently is that the passage that is chosen for public reading before the sermon typically tied into the sermon somehow. So even just being aware of that and mindful of that and thinking about that. And a couple helpful ways of maybe even recognizing that is, I, I, I know at least the sermon text is available prior to Sunday, mm-hmm. and so times where I'm able to spend time in the sermon text mm-hmm. prior to Sunday morning can just be helpful in in being more attentive to what's being read mm-hmm. on Sunday morning. Yeah, so trying to hack the the thematic connection of why this was chosen. To feed in, and often if we're doing it well with the pastoral prayer, it'll be similar. The pastoral prayer will draw out themes that may point the way toward the sermon. And yeah, so just thinking through the interconnection of texts can be a very rich way to to get a lot more out of scripture. That's a good word. Uh, to close, just for sake of time, we'll let, we'll let that be it. But um, yeah, God has made a way for us to worship him, to hear from him, to speak to him. And uh, we started looking at these five ways of dealing with scripture with, with regard to hearing. So may God bless to our souls the hearing of his word. I'll close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace, your initiation in Christ, this plan of redemption uh, in which you've drawn us away from sin back to yourself in worship, to hear from you, to speak to you. And just as we, we were reminded, this is the reason we exist, is to be near you, to enjoy you. And we pray that our private and public worship would all be to this end, that we'd mature in Christ, that we would uh, just more and more live this blessed existence of being rooted deeply in Christ and in you, the triune God. Uh, We thank you for this time and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.